Hello and welcome to EM Talk. EM Talk is a podcast sponsored by Axon Education and the Texas EMS School, and we are devoted to diving into the real world of EMS and everything relative. We interview real EMS providers, real hospital providers, real patients, and get the real story on what's going on currently in the world of EMS and what we can do to make it better. Hello and welcome to EM Talk. On this episode, we're going to be talking about rural EMS. Now, we've done an episode of rural EMS before, but what we did was more specific to what it really is rather than talking about what it feels like to be a part of a rural EMS service. So with us today, I have uh, two guests. I have Kara Pierce, who is the director of Haskell EMS, Stanford EMS, and Anthony EMS. Um, and I also have Mark Flores, who is an assistant director for Stanford and Anson. Is that right, Mark? Um, yes, that is. Okay. All right. So, uh, Kara, go ahead and give us a short bio, uh, how, how you started EMS or why you care about it now and what you're doing now. And then, Mark, you'll do the same. Okay. Okay. Um, I, I don't know how to answer all of those questions. Um, I've been in high school for five years, and for most of that time, I've been the administrator there, too. Recently, I did take the administrator spot at Stanford, and we have a station in Anson. Um, I don't know why I got into this. It just happened. I guess I was just supposed to be here because things just keep continuing to fall in my lap and keeping me here, so um, <laughs> I, I still don't know the answer of why, but I'm I'm here and I guess I'm staying. So that's oh, right. that's all there is to me. <laughs> this that's is all it. I do. <laughs> that's all I have time for. <laughs> all right, Mark. Uh, how how did you get started in EMS and why are you still doing it? I've been doing EMS now for nearly five years. Um, was an EMT for about. Four and a half of that, and been a certified paramedic for a couple months now. Um, I got into EMS because um, whenever I got out of high school, one of my teachers told me I needed to go to college and do something I thought I I would enjoy. So gave this a shot, and I guess I just fell in love with this job. I loved every second of it. Um, I'm not really too sure why I'm here in Haskell in this area. Um, I guess one of the main reasons is is that I got really good coworkers. It's a good work environment, and um, I guess that's what's just keeping me here. I like it here. <laughs> so uh, something unique about Mark is Mark is one of the few EMS professionals that is not superstitious, or even if he is, he really doesn't care. Uh, every shift that I've ever worked with Mark, he immediately wakes up and says, oh, man, I can't wait for all the calls we're going to get today. <laughs> or uh, if it's not going fast enough in the day, he'll he'll sit there and talk about how slow it is or how quiet it is. And uh, if you're one of those people that's been in EMS for a while, obviously you would rather sit for a little while than do anything else. And uh, Mark wants to ruin that for all of you. So if if you're ever cursed or feel like you're having the worst EMS day ever, it's probably Mark's fault. I guess it's so. just because I've done work rule EMS, so my fault. <laughs> Let's run calls. Let's do it. <laughs> so 
let's let's move forward with this. So what we're talking about today is the types of calls that we get in Rule EMS, um, how we specifically handle those calls. Uh, also, we're going to do a little bit of a comparison. I've worked in the, the urban setting and have a lot of uh, friends with experience in the urban setting, um, and we'll kind of compare the two just a little bit. But mostly, we want to get into some like specifics about uh, about rural EMS and what it's like to be a a long-term provider there, which is what you would consider anybody who stays in that setting for more than a couple of years, um, which these these two providers have. So. Um, Mark and Kara, what are the what are the two most the, sorry, not the two most. What what are the, the most common call that you get in the rural setting? I'd probably say it's uh, anything concerning the um, elderly and um, anything trauma wise, such as NBCs or anything agriculture wise as well. Okay. Okay, uh, so uh, elderly, uh, trauma, uh, NBCs, uh, and agricultural. Um, you're gonna. Everybody knows what all those are, except for the general population probably doesn't understand what agricultural would be in the EMS setting. Okay, um, I guess it'd be more of um, anything where. Um, where we've had, I didn't experience it, but we've had here in Haskell once upon a time, or I believe it was in Haskell, such as someone was driving a tractor, had a medical emergency, and had a heart attack. I don't think very many people have experience trying to uh, get a full-grown man off the tractor while he needs compressions being done. Also, you know, just the time it takes to get there and having the resources there in order to help move them safely and get them to the hospital quickly while providing all the uh, necessary care that he needs as well. Mark, I can I can give you a first-hand knowledge of that exact call that you're speaking of. Uh, I figured you in case you went on it. Yeah, so, uh, no, that, that's, that's a good point is um, general in the, you know, if you're in the urban setting, it's not often you're pulling somebody out of some kind of uh, farming equipment to try to do CPR on them. So, um, yeah, that's that's a good explanation of that. Uh, so, Kara, do you agree uh, with Mark's assessment that probably, you know, elderly calls or geriatric calls and then trauma, NBC, stuff like that, do you feel like that's pretty accurate? Yeah. Um, a lot of our numbers are mostly medical, um, but we do have a major highway that goes through here, so we do get NBCs, and we're out here where uh, people are hitting deer and hogs and things like that uh, after dark. So we get those. And uh, like Mark was saying, the agricultural thing, I think we've been fortunate that we haven't had, you know, um, any traumas out in the, like, on tractors or anything, you know. Um, I know our some of our surrounding counties have, I've had people get their hands caught in equipment, things like that, and we've we've been fortunate here where um, it's just been medical emergencies out in the field, so we have not we haven't had to experience that yet as a trauma. Yeah, and I can say, I mean, the only time other than like uh, the tractor incident is what I'll refer to that as. Um, I, I had a guy get his leg caught in a gin one time. Uh, oh. Yeah, in the cotton gin. 
And uh, anybody that doesn't know what a cotton gin is, I'm not going to take time to explain that, probably because I really don't understand either. But uh, you're you're welcome to go Google that and figure it out for yourself. But not something you want to get your uh, your leg or any other extremity caught in. Um. So uh. So there's those types of calls. So the the thing I know that most people are going to be interested in are um, the MVCs. Uh. So let me let me tell you. Let's talk about what an MVC looks like in the urban setting, and then I want to give the same scenario from y'all's setting and see how we, each one of us would deal with that. So I'll give you a rec that I worked um, uh, in the urban setting. We had uh, we had a male who um, ran into a pole uh, for a sign head-on. He possibly uh, was intoxicated. He indicated to us that he had been drinking. And he hit the sign, no seatbelts, uh, older vehicle, so no uh, airbags. And um, he definitely cracked several ribs, uh, massive bleeding to his face and extremities. Um, but the the big thing was that I noticed on this wreck is, like, even though I'm the EMS provider, uh, half the work was being done by, you know, fire personnel. There's all these other first responders around who are pretty much doing everything that I would normally do in the rule setting, and they're just kind of handling it. And all I'm doing is staring over their shoulders saying, yeah, it looks good, okay, yep. Uh, it's more like a, um, a leadership role or a directional role than anything else. So similar call in the rule setting, somebody runs their vehicle, you know, off into a ditch and hits a tree. Uh, what is your experience there? What is that like? Uh, we, I guess um, I've had one where it took us probably about 15 minutes to get out there. Um, this actually happened a couple of years ago. It was one of those very rare, unfortunate occasions where, uh, Call came in about 4 a.m. Um, it had been snowing for several days, so uh, it what would take a normal 15-minute drive took about 30 or 40 just because of the conditions. It was snowing, freezing cold. The roads were, you know, obviously messed up. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, this uh, person in their uh, four-door big pickup truck, four-wheel drive, thought they'd be okay, wrapped their truck around a tree and they got partially ejected and they were trapped from the waist down in their vehicle we're not sure how because there's absolutely no lighting even with our led spotlights we had to wait for fire department to get there and i guess that's another thing we run into is that we uh absolutely appreciate everything all our volunteer firemen do just sometimes at certain times and uh i guess just because certain events people got things going on and you know they're not paid firemen that uh, we don't get enough to respond to scenes because that local fire department there only had about two people show up, so we had to call the nearby fire department, and they had about five or six people show up, and it took took them some time to cut this person out because it was a you know a unique call that they've never encountered as well because of the weather and the location of it, and uh. It took quite a while to cut them out. I'd say it probably took about nearly an hour, all, you know, mostly thanks to the environment. But, uh, we fortunately, we got him out, and I think he, uh, only, he broke his right hip fib and his right ankle, and he was hypothermic. 
But I think we had them warmed up pretty good because it took us about well over an hour to transport them to the nearest trauma center because of the road conditions and the weather. So you've got a lot of things in play there. You've got uh, the distance to get to the call. So if I'm, you know, anywhere in the city that I'm in, if we have a call, generally we can get to it within 10 minutes. Um, and usually it's faster. Usually it's anywhere from four to six minutes. So uh, in the rule setting, even a regular call might be 20 minutes away because you're covering usually an entire county, not just a city. And that county may be, you know, a 1,000 square miles, and you're the truck in that 1,000 square miles. And so there's one factor is you guys getting to the call. The second thing that's totally different is that you guys were, you know, limited resources. You you only had your crew and whoever was available to show up. And, yeah, no, no dis or disrespect intended for any volunteer fire department at all. Um, you're volunteering your time. You're putting yourself at risk, and everyone appreciates that absolutely. But because, you're, because the departments aren't paid, what ends up happening is, you know, whoever can show up shows up, and that's all there is to it. Um, so there's no obligation to be there. And then uh, so you have that factor. And then the third factor is the uh, the ability to get them to a um, an appropriate facility. So, you know, you may have a hospital within 10 minutes, but that hospital may not have any capability to provide definitive care because it's a rural area hospital, which a lot of these rural area ERs qualify as a rural clinic more more so than anything, and because of that, what happens is you get them there, and they can do very similar things that you could have done in the ambulance. So um, so those are like the three biggest factors, I guess. And so, Tara, I, I know something that you have, have experience with that is very similar, and it's not trauma. I want to come back to trauma, but uh, stroke calls. So patient has a stroke. Um, where 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 do you go from there? Because in your area, I mean, if they have a stroke, you can't treat that stroke at the hospital right there. So what do you do? Uh, well, we have to call a helicopter. We call the helicopter and put them on it, and they that's how they get where they need to go the fastest route. Um, there's no way for us to to put them in our ambulance and and take them because our county would then be uncovered without an ambulance so um we can't just just load them and go we have to um call and and wait for the helicopter to get here our hospital just recently got a ct machine so they can they can start the treatment here but they're they're going to be um sent out after after they get their the first round of treatment that they need um they're going to be sent out somewhere else after that so um if you if you have a stroke here you have to to think about um you know are are you gonna go ahead and take them here to the hospital and and get that um get the drugs going immediately or are you just gonna call and and just get them somewhere where they can do everything that they need so that's your decision well in, in that decision you know the way that you're describing it is as just an everyday decision, but having been in the urban setting, like it's not one that anybody in that setting ever has to make. 
They're yeah. just like, well, I can take them to this hospital or this hospital. They're both pretty much the same distance apart and can do the exact same things and will perfectly take care of that patient perfectly. So, um, you know, it's not an everyday thing that EMS providers are, are forced to make, you know, these life or death decisions, which I know sounds weird because most people that aren't EMS just assume every day we're just like, well, life or death, make this decision. But in reality, that's, that's not happening, happening as often as people would expect. But when it does, it's, it's something like this. It's like, well, I've, I've got to make this really big decision that usually some physician is paid to make. And um, it could either cause the death of this person or it could save their life. So I hope I make the right call. Uh, so anyway, I mean, you know, like I said, you're so used to making that decision that to you it's just like, well, it's just what we do. And to everyone else, it's like, oh, God, that's a terrifying uh, situation. So um, so those that is both the traumatic calls and, and like, stroke calls, big medical calls are handled in, in different ways, but in the rural setting, the same kind of factors play into it. Uh, so let's talk about some of those factors. So we, we talked about distances and hospitals and things like that. So manpower. Um, maybe, uh, Mark, you are on a volunteer fire department. Is that correct? I am. Okay. So volunteer fire department, do they have the same equipment to cut, you know, cut someone out of a car that they would have? at a uh at a paid fire department uh i'd say for um smaller everyday vehicles we uh we have the proper equipment to cut someone out we still though i'm not trying to disrespect any of the other volunteer firemen even like myself we don't have a lot of a lot of knowledge on using those tools sometimes some of us have a very large amount of knowledge some have very little and we just don't have a lot of experience using them because, as you all know, we don't cut people out every single day. Um, I guess whenever it comes to more uh, specialty rescue, heavy rescue, we unfortunately don't have those resources, though. Right. Well, and that's, I mean, that's just a, a matter of uh, cost and, and need, really. It's just uh, not a common need to to be able to do some of that stuff. And sometimes it is needed, but we're so used to managing that in the rural setting that everybody just assumes, why well, get it? They're just going to figure out how to do it without it, um, which is sad, but that is, is how it goes most of the time. Um, so there's a big difference between, you know, a volunteer and a paid paid fire department, both in uh, their ability to to do everything, like the, the equipment they have, um, manpower, we mentioned, like, you're not obligated to show up to anything. And some volunteer fire departments are a little different. Some volunteer departments, they have shifts and things like that. And so, you know, if that's how yours operates, I understand. Please don't send angry emails um, responding to that. Because, <laughs> uh, again, not disrespecting anybody here. Um, so, Kara, uh, how many ambulances do you run out of the city of Haskell? One. Okay. One. Uh, <laughs> and then um, out of Stanford? One. One. And out of Anson? One. I knew the answer to all those questions. <laughs> I was wondering. Uh, but I'm, I'm making a point here. Um, Haskell County is 903 square miles. Uh, Stanford and Anson are part of Jones County, which is 
also a pretty similar size. Um, yeah, it's probably 930 square miles, so, something pretty close to that. Yeah, and we so cover got, about 85, 90% of that. And that's, I mean, that's a huge amount of space. We're talking about 1,800 square miles of space and three ambulances to respond. And granted, the population for that that amount of space is probably like 10,000 people, um, if that, or maybe a little more. But, I mean, in most, you know, in a city with 10,000 people, they might have three ambulances running within that city trying to respond to all the calls inside of the city limits. And then they might have a rural ambulance service that responds to the outer area. Um, so it's, it's not, and it's not a matter of like nobody wants to have more ambulances there. It's, it's another one of these resources we're talking about. And, and unfortunately in EMS, it's a, it's a big one. And that's financial resources. Um, you know, how many calls would you say all three services run together in a year? Oh, I'm really bad at math. Um, that's okay. <laughs> What is like um eight hundred and six hundred together? Fourteen? Uh yes. Okay. Yeah, that that would be my guess. So about fourteen hundred calls. Yeah. And you've got uh you know, probably between all three services what, like fifteen, twenty employees? Yeah, twenty. Okay. Um, so, I mean, we're talking about 20 people running these, you know, six, 14, yeah, 14 is what we just said, 1,400 calls a year. Um, so really those 20 people are getting a ton of experience out of those 1,400 calls because, you know, some of those people are full-time, some of those people might be part-time, but they're, they're running, they're getting their hands on all of this stuff. And so what would be, I mean, what would be ideal is to have like three ambulances in each city so that everybody uh, gets, you know, you can post them in different spots and, and distances are, are closed and, you know, more people means happier people generally. Um, but it's just, you know, it, it's 1,400 calls in the revenue from that to try to run uh, three ambulance services. Which is, uh, I mean, we're not going to get into all of that because that's, that's a lot to talk about and nobody wants to hear it but the three of us. <laughs> um, but, uh, it's a lot. If you, if you ever have been involved in running an ambulance service, there's a lot of cost involved. And a lot of that sure is, is paying for people to go do their job. But at the same time, I mean, the, the supplies that we use are ridiculously expensive. They're way overpriced. The drugs we're using to try to save people's lives are highly, highly expensive. And then, um, you know, even fuel, like the things that people aren't factoring in, the cost of fuel to drive all the way out to the edge of the county and then all the way to another city to take them to definitive care, all the way back, um, you know, fuel costs alone are thousands of dollars a year. Uh, between these three units, probably I would, my guess would probably be closer to like $50,000 a year spent on fuel, um, to keep all three, you know, just three ambulances running all the time. Um, and it's, I mean, that's a crazy thought there. So there's, there's another resource. So we've got manpower. We've got, uh, 
you know, ability and supplies. We've got financial resources. Um, and then we talked briefly about, about hospitals. So what hospitals do you guys have in your areas? We have Haskell Hospital in Haskell. And the city of Stanford used to have a hospital, and that hospital recently closed. So that's no longer available to those people there. Uh, the next closest hospital is the hospital in Anson. And um, so the, the biggest hospital for um, Haskell would be uh, Abilene, one, one of the two that's in Abilene, and that's like 55 miles for us to travel. Right, so we're about, uh, you know, 50 minutes to an hour, uh, maybe even an hour and a half if the roads aren't good, uh, to get someone to definitive care, to, to a place like, say, your, your arm's cut off and, uh, you know, we've pulled you out of a vehicle and now we've got to get you somewhere where they can try to put your arm back on and or keep you, uh, from bleeding out. Um, which we can stop uh, initially with a tourniquet or something like that. But, you know, the definitive care is not going to be wherever the local hospital is in that situation. That's a, a stabilizer. That's where we would take you to baby to stabilize you. But definitive care is actually going to be one of those larger hospitals that has a trauma center, surgical capability, um, blood on hand, that kind of thing. Um, and I think a lot of EMS providers out there aren't familiar with that idea that maybe they can't just take them to whatever's next door to them. Um, you know, uh, the general amount of time that an EMS responder or provider is with their patient is probably what, like five to ten minutes uh, is the time that I've got to keep this person um, well and alive in the back of my ambulance. What's your average amount of time in the back of an ambulance with your patients? Uh, you can answer that one, Mark. Oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> it, it could definitely vary. If it's here in high school and say we picked up a heart attack victim out in Rochester, which is way on the uh, north northwest part of Haskell County, we got a backup crew. Say it took us a while to get them out of the house. Uh, we're anywhere between you know, 15 to 25 minutes on scene, and now we're going to have probably an hour and 20-minute transport to the nearest facility that has uh, a cath lab. So we could be with them for quite a while. That is, of course, you know, if we were able to bypass our hospital with a backup crew and, and we didn't have a flight team available. Right. And so, I mean, you know, I, I've run severe cardiac calls uh, where I'm at, and and I would say probably I've got one, I've got like four other paramedics on scene who can look at that patient and be like, yeah, I confer. This is exactly what's going on. Um, and two, I I have the ability to know that no matter what, once I get that guy in my ambulance, either direction I go, I've probably got a transport time of about five minutes. Um, and that's it. That's all I've got to do is I've got to do my job for five to ten minutes and I can keep this guy alive and save his life and get him at the right place. And I say save his life. If everyone could see me, I would have quotes going on right now. Um, I don't like to give myself too much credit for any of that. But, um, 
but it's the reality that most EMS providers are used to. And I'll tell you what, having worked in the rural setting, it's super scary to know that I'm about to get in the back of this truck and then that guy or that female, whoever that patient is, their life is in my hands like an hour and 20 minutes. I've got to try to keep them going. Um, and I'm sure that's what everybody, all the patients out there want to hear is that's what they're thinking about. Um, but, uh, uh-oh. I got a call. Um, sorry about that. That's okay. Everybody say bye to Mark. We'll finish up with Tara. All right. We'll talk to y'all later. Bye. Bye bye, Marky Mark. We are making it sound like it's really scary to work out here. And well, I think that you don't think it is because no. you do it. <laughs> but having left it for a while and then, you know, seeing what it's like when you have everything at your fingertips that you could possibly want to have, it is a little scarier. It's, I'm not going to say I'm scared because I'm a man and I don't do that. But uh, but it's just different. It's not scary to work in the rural setting. It's challenging is the word that I would use. Right. Uh, I, you really have to know what you're doing. And a lot, of, a lot of people have this misconception that it's, you know, just these backwoods people running around with no knowledge trying to save people, and in reality, it's very experienced providers uh, put in really tough situations trying to do as much or more than you would in any other setting um, with way less resources. So it's like the ultimate definition. It's like if you had a, a puzzle to put together, but somebody gave you a piece that doesn't fit or just stole one of the pieces, and you're sitting there trying to fix this puzzle, and you're like, well, I don't have that piece. Um, so I don't know what to do right here, but I'm going to figure it out anyways. Um, yeah, it's thinking on your feet. I mean, we, we may not have, um, the most up-to-date equipment and, and sometimes we have to think around that. Um, or if there's some kind of mechanical failure in the middle of, of what you're trying to do and you've got to work around that, um, it's, it can be difficult, especially, uh, when you're talking about time. Uh, getting someone to a doctor somewhere. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's that's the biggest thing that's going on in the back of your head the whole time is, okay, how long have I been here? How long is it going to take me to get there? Um, And what am I going to do when I inevitably have to take this person out of there to a different place? Mm -hmm. Um, So it's just a lot to consider all at once. And, uh, I mean, if if anybody's ever been down on rural EMS providers, they need to do a gut check and, and really think about what it is they're doing out there because it's, it's hard. It's a hard, it's a hard setting to operate in and um, it takes people that actually care about the patients to do it because if you're in it for the, for the money or for an easy job or something like that, it's just not what rural EMS is at all. Um, right. So something, uh, that that I wanted to touch on is we're we're coming up to the icy season, and if you're from Texas, the icy season is pretty much anywhere from the end of November to the end of February. And what happens is that in in Texas we don't seem to understand how ice or um, tires or any of that kind of stuff works. Um, and so when it rains and then freezes. That creates ice, and we go out and drive like that doesn't exist. And so tell me about um, what it's like when it gets icy in your area, because we talked about those long transports to other hospitals, and mm-hmm. those still have to happen 
and you've still got to get all the way out to the edge of your county to pick up whatever patient it is and take care of them. So what is it like? Like, give me give me a description of, of EMS in the rural setting when the roads are icy. Uh, uh, it's exhausting. Um, <laughs> you just, it's like, it would be like uh, working in the, uh, in the city, but you only had one truck. And so you're, you're working all of those calls in one day with one ambulance and you and your partner. So you're getting just multiple people who are wrecking out on the road and then you're trying to get them somewhere and something else happens to somebody else and it's, it's nonstop and then you've got to figure out how to get them, you know, an hour down the road, which is going to take you three hours to get there one way. So, um, <laughs> I, I don't like it. I don't look forward to it. I do not like the winter for a lot of reasons. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I mean, that's, uh, that is the scariest time of year in, in the role EMS. Setting. It is literally just you and your partner. I mean, the helicopter is not going to fly. Um, the county next to you is probably doing the same thing that you're doing, so you may or may not have the mutual aid help that you need. Um, right. So it is literally just you, and you're taking care of everybody. Well, and see, I remember um, a winter when it was probably the worst that I've ever witnessed, it, the, the roads were at least, and um, I remember it's the first big wreck started with, seven people in one vehicle and mm-hmm. all all of which were fairly severely injured that we had to manage and then it didn't stop for probably two or three days straight and mm-hmm. i believe you were on shift for most of that with another one of uh the emts with one of the emts I there. Was. I and was. Yeah. Uh, you guys were up all night i think we, we ended up with something like 27 patients on I think, actually i think i had like 30 something oh patient God. contact and yeah i at the end of the night i think our last call that we had i had by that time just gone crazy um <laughs> and it, it happened to be a a semi truck that was hauling cars so there <laughs> were <laughs> yeah and he slid across the highway and another car slid into him and so he lost all of his cars out into the median and onto the roadway and I was just running around like how who's in this car are you okay who's in this car and I <laughs> ran around to the other side and I see all these cars and I was like oh my gosh there's there's so I'm running around looking for people and there's no people in any of these cars and I just stand there in the median and I'm just screaming where are all the people that were in these cars and finally, one of the fire guys came up to me and was like, Kara, it was a car hauler. Like, there's there's no more patience. And I was like, oh, I just relieved. Because uh, all day we had had so many people. I was just exhausted and crazy at that point. I have this really funny image of you just, like, on your knees in the middle of the highway just screaming. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was used to, like, loading, like, five or six people up in my ambulance at one time and and trying to get them to the warm hospital, and I was, like, ready to go. All right, like, where's my 30 people? Like, let's go. (laughs) (laughs) They weren't there. They had just disappeared. Oh, my gosh. 
Oh man, that's so so crazy, and and like that never happens in in a urban setting. Well, I'll say I'll say never, but I'm sure there have been extraordinary circumstances where you know the urban setting is just like, well, there's a thirty car pile up on the highway, and like nobody else can get up here, so everybody jump in, we're going, um, mm-hmm. you know, and because really, you know, you, these newer providers. Um, are thinking, okay, I'm going to follow ICS. I, I learned this in school. Um, I'm going to manage this scene and, you know, keep everybody safe and get them to definitive care, but I'm going to do it one truck at a time. And in reality, you've got, you know, however many people uh, exposed to the cold. And really in that situation, you know, once you've controlled bleeding and stabilized spines, the real killer, the real um, threat is the weather because mm-hmm. they're going to freezing real fast uh, right. and so now we've we've got to manage that situation and you may not be able to sit there and wait on 40 different ambulances to show up especially in the rural area where like yeah. the other trucks might take 20 minutes to get there it's just not an option mm-hmm. and so, you know it, it's uh it's the nature of the game but i i would say um, the icy season was the only time of year that I really was like not excited to be doing that job. Um, because it was just like never, nobody sleeps. Everybody's always up and the wrecks start the second the road gets icy. Everybody starts mm-hmm. wrecking cars. Yeah. Um, and it's awful. And you get the same thing in, in the urban setting. Just, you know, it's just a little different because there's more people to respond to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, so road condition, um, what about a what about a transfer when it's icy like that? Like can you still take a tran can your truck still get there? Is you know? Uh I I really don't like for us. I I feel like it uh it takes us out of our county for too long when there's a possibility of too many things to go wrong during that time. Right. Um, but uh somebody else may not be available. I mean you just don't have any other resources when the weather is bad, and so you probably you probably just have to go. And um, you know, if your patient is a critical patient, then that's that's going to be the only way that they can get there. But also, it's it's probably going to be a longer transport time than what they need. Uh, so there's there's just a lot of a lot of factors, patient and um, like on my my side of it, administrative wise, that go into play because you don't you don't want your crew to be unsafe or anything to happen to the patient while they're going, and then you have to find someone else who is able to run a backup crew, run your second ambulance while while they're out. So yeah, and local people to to help you out. That's that's all you can rely on. Right, and that's that's really um that's really what the conclusion of rural EMS is, is that uh it's it's more like a community family thing. Um you're going to these calls where you probably know the you could know the people you're going to. Mm-hmm. Um you're trying to figure out how to manage uh, their loved ones or, or whoever it may be. And, you know, the whole community comes together as a team. You, you, If you remember 
being in EMT school, they talk to you about, you know, question the bystanders and, and, uh, ask them to, to assist you if necessary and, and all this other stuff. And, you know, in, in real life, real life EMS, that's not the right term. In, uh, in EMS, when you get out into, into that world, um, the rule setting is where that actually comes into play the most. Because that's when, you know, you're at somebody's family reunion and you're like, okay, I've got this guy who needs CPR. I hate to do this, but can I get your help over here? Uh, because it's me and my partner and we just drove 15 miles out here to get to you and we have no idea if the fire department's going to make it here or not. Um, so I need your help. Or whatever the situation may be, you're icy road and you're looking for your 30 cars worth of patients. Um, and you're like, just anybody, somebody tell me where they are. Uh, so it's, um, it's a really a, uh, I mentioned the, the word puzzle earlier and it's like all these other people and, uh, these ideas that, that you come up with all form the, the puzzle. It's like there's no set puzzle pieces. There was never any puzzle pieces. There's just one puzzle piece. And then because you're in that setting and, and you're having to figure everything out and work on your feet, then you uh, you create the other puzzle pieces. And uh, Rule EMS to me is like this big community uh, creative game that gets played every day. And, um, you know, I wish uh, that we could convince more of these students that are in school to, or wherever they may be, if you're in EMT school, paramedic school, whatever it is, or even if you're already working and, and looking for something different, rule EMS is fun. Rule EMS is is really cool, and it really is like if you want to be a creative person and you want to be that think-outside-of-the-box type of paramedic, EMT, uh, whatever it may be, that's where you want to go. So. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I've watched you do that many times, and we've worked together and, and done that together many times. Um, so to sum it up, uh, what would you say to a brand-new EMT who's like, should I go work in the rural EMS setting? Brand-new. Uh... Brand-new. Never been in EMS before. Hmm. That's a tough question. Um, do you think um, that do you think that uh, the brand new EMT out there um, has the ability to go work at one of these rural services? Possibly. I think they're going to fall on their face. <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean, you are, you are when you're you're in the back of the truck with if you just have a basic partner too. I mean. Um, if you're if you're working with a paramedic, you might lean on them and be like, well, that's their decision. You know, I'm just going to follow follow their lead. But um, if you just have a basic partner and and you're working out in the county somewhere and it's it's your decision, um, yeah, you you probably will fall on your face. Be prepared to uh, yeah. to fall on your face. You know, you can always fall back on uh, something that I teach at my school is fall back on your ABCs. Uh, you can always yeah. go back to managing airway, breathing, circulation. We know how to do those three things. So if you're going to go and you're a brand-new EMT, brand-new provider, and you're going to go work in the, the rural setting, be prepared to, to not know exactly what to do 
and be prepared to re recover yourself by falling back to your ABCs, retreat to your ABCs um, to take care of that person because the rest of it is uh, is a thinking, think not thinking man's game, it's a thinking person's game, obviously, because um, we're not all men, are we, Kara? Uh, and so um, – right. So well, I think it's that it that's where that's where you need your book is your ABC stuff. But um, out here, it's experience. Experience is what what is really going to get you through all the calls and everything. So you, and the only way to get that is to just do it. Yeah, absolutely. To, you know, to fall fall down and be like, okay, that I'm not going to let that happen again. You know, make make sure that you're making those changes whenever you see that that you did something that that maybe could have been done better. I mean, you just learn from that and, and go on and it's the experience that, that carries us through it. Yeah. I and that's more than the book. That's the reality. I mean, you learn the book so that you don't have to think about that when you go help somebody, because what you're really going to have to think about is now, how do I use all that to do my actual job? Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, learn the materials, study like somebody's life depends on it, be good at that, and then go out there and be receptive to experience. Learn from mistakes, pay attention to other people's mistakes, um, and don't, don't be afraid to, uh, to make the calls. You know, don't be afraid to make a decision and move forward. Because that's the only way you truly learn, especially in the rural setting where there's nobody else to fall back on but you and your partner. Right. So, so anyways, uh, I, I'm going to wrap it up and just say uh, thank you to Kara uh, for for being on EM Talk today. And uh, Mark is, is texting me right now saying they're almost done. He's got about ten minutes, but he's going to miss the end of it because um, we're not waiting around on Mark. Uh, you know, if you guys knew Mark, you wouldn't want to wait around on him either. Uh, anyway, no, I'm just kidding, Mark. Once you listen to this, don't be mad. So uh, we'll go ahead and we'll leave it at that. And um, obviously, we're happy to have had Kara today, and we'll have her back on another time. So, Kara, thanks for, for being here. Thanks. You're welcome. And uh, we'll talk to you guys next time on EM Talks.